0: This is uh, Ephesians chapter 2, starting at verse 11. It's a beautiful passage. It says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit.
1: Thank you, Matt. Uh, Good morning. And again, I think it was the third time. Happy New Year. Um, We're getting to that time uh, where uh, we're here on the last day of 2017. We're looking forward to 2018 to see what it's going to bring for us Um, because, well, we don't know, but uh, we want to make plans. We want to do things that uh, maybe change how we'll operate in 2018 as opposed to 2017. Um, this time of year, I do like to look back and see what I have accomplished over a year. I don't know if you do that as well. Um, just kind of a successes and failures. Where have I done things well? Where have I not done things? So let me ask you, how did you do with those New Year's resolutions you made uh, January 1, 2017? Uh, those go well for you. Those go bad for you. Um, I heard on the radio this week, that uh, only 8% of people who make New Year's resolutions actually keep them. So I think we're all in the same boat there. If you're one of the 8%, good job you. Uh, I am not. I had a, uh, uh, a resolution to actually read. I wanted to read 12 books, at least 12 books this year. Uh, Cindy, my wife, will tell you that I started at least 12 books. And I maybe finished... Um, can you actually do? Ha- I did one and a half. Can you finish half a book? Call it. I did somewhere in there. But another one of my resolutions is I wanted to spend more time with my family, and I think I did that one well. I'm getting the thumbs up. Yes, I did do that one well. So that's good. That's good. Maybe uh, a one-year chunk of time just thinking about it isn't isn't your kind of deal. Maybe you're a. I don't know why it would be this. Because uh, I'm not uh, a five to ten-year person. Right? There's got to be a couple in this crowd. There has to be. There always is. Uh, how, are those, how are those long-term plans going? Are they going well for you? Are you, are you where you thought you'd be? Is the expectation uh, matching the reality of what is? Um, I know uh, life happens, plans change, things go the way you don't want them to. Uh, maybe you don't even like doing the, the five to ten year thing. Maybe you just like looking over, uh, but looking over your whole life. Uh, I, I, I can only go back 25 years, really, to my memory, because that's as far as it allowed me to go. Um, in 25 years, I was uh, 10 at the time, and I can tell you that reality does not match my expectation of when I was 10. Thankfully, it's a lot better than I thought it would be, because my 10-year-old self was kind of weird and... I thought I'd be flying in a car or doing something awesome like that, but uh, no, I'm in a much better place. So as you, as you look back and you think over your, over your life or over the past year or the five to ten years that it's been, are you finding yourself where you thought you'd be, this expectation? And I wonder how many came in here today expecting to, to hear a, a New Year's sermon kind of thing. I, not going to disappoint. This is going to be a New Year's sermon, uh, kind of thing. But there's there's two things I don't want uh, this sermon to be. What I don't want you to hear. I don't want you to hear a moralistic message where you can do better, you can try harder, you can be more through your effort. That is not my intention to have that be. Nor is it intended to be a verbal beating. Um, saying, well, you messed up, and uh, now do better. I don't want it to be that either. Um, In this message, though, if you do feel conviction, that's a thing. But uh, we want to address that in its proper context. What I do want us to hear as we go through our teaching today is uh, two things. First, God can change you. God can change you. This is where that conviction comes in, where if you hear something today and it kind of stirs something in you, um, that, that's good, and it should draw you to God to, um, to lean on Him to make those changes because He can do radically more than we could ever do on our own effort. He can actually change a person. So the second thing I want you to hear in, in that, and it kind of couples with it, is I want you to hear encouragement and hope. Um, encouragement and hope. So the question that comes up, well, how are, how are we going to do this, Dan? How are we going to have this, uh, this New Year's message delivered to us? And I was going to, I was planning on doing it through interpretive dance and music. <laughs> I have been advised against this. I don't know why, Um, actually I do know it's terrible, I I can't dance for nothing, Um, but instead we're going to actually look at the book of Haggai today, Um, and it's a very small book, it's two chapters long, Um, conversation I had right before the service said if it's at least five, my sermon is at least five minutes long, I will have at least read the book, because that's how long it takes to get through the book, is about five minutes, but it's um, tucked in there at the very end of the Old Testament. Um, third to the last, is that how you'd say it? So it's the third to the last book of the Old Testament and most of the minor prophets, uh, we've been hearing this, this judgment uh, that's going to come to Israel and to Judah, that they're going to go into exile and the Babylonians and the Assyrians and all this stuff. Haggai is different. This is nice. It takes place after the exile. So 70 years of time have passed and Haggai comes on the scene. So we're thinking, all right, some good news here. Not so much. Not so much good news. So uh, we still want to listen to what's going on here, though. So let's pick it up at uh, the first verse of the book of Haggai. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jezadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people, that's the Israelites there, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in paneled houses while this house remains in ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. "'Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house "'so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored,' says the Lord. "'You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. "'What you brought home I blew away. "'Why?' declares the Lord Almighty. "'Because of my house, which remains a ruin. "'While each of you is busy with your own house, "'therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew "'and the earth its crops.'" I called for a drought drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Happy New Year. (laughs) That's the word of the Lord given to the the people of Israel. And it doesn't sound that encouraging. They've, They've come back into the promised land. This is after the exile. They're in a good place and they hear these harsh words. And right here, I do I want to put a little disclaimer. Again, what I don't want this message to be is moralistic and that. And with this, I don't want us to hear that uh, if we're not doing it God's way, he's going to thump us upside the head. What this prophecy is, is for those people at that specific time. There was a reason that they were experiencing hardship, and it's because they, they decided that it was not time to uh, build the house of the Lord. Uh, a little, little history on that one, uh, we'll get to in a minute, actually. So, what, what he's um, saying here is he's speaking, speaking to these people that, that actually went there for the reason, the whole reason they went back was to build the temple, and now they are not building the temple. So what happened was this expectation versus reality. So when they got there, it was actually kind of recorded. Actually, it is recorded, not kind of. It is recorded in the book of Ezra. This king uh, Cyrus had allowed them to come back into the promised land to rebuild the temple. And this is in the book of Ezra. And somewhere, I think it's about the second or third chapter, uh, a letter is sent to another king. And uh, this king then decrees after hearing that, oh, they're going to rebel if they rebuild this temple. He says, no, don't build the temple. So they're like, all right, we won't build the temple. The, the circumstances changes, uh, changed rather. So what happened in the meantime? So they can't go, they, they went back. They can't build the temple now because this other king said, don't build it. So what do they do? What would you do? I would assume, and they did, what all of us would do. I think they got back to their lives. They just started living. They were like, okay, can't build the temple. Well, I got to eat food, so they planted crops. And I got to have workers, so they went to work, and I got to eat, and I have to drink, and I have to just do daily life. Daily life happened for a long time. Not that it was necessarily bad, but they just needed to move on. Just because the temple project stopped doesn't mean life stopped. And uh, Haggai comes along and speaks these telling words. And it, uh, it hits them pretty hard, actually. It's almost as if they forgot the purpose that they, uh, they went back for. So I have to ask this question to myself as I'm reading through this. Is it, is it bad to care for myself? Is it bad for you to care for yourself? I mean, that's what they were doing. Is it is it bad to dress myself, feed myself when I need nourishment, um, go to work, build a home, raise a family, do all those things? I think on the whole, we would say, yes, it's not, it's not bad. It's actually a good thing to do that. So why is God calling Israel out? And I want us to um, imagine this scenario. Kind of close your eyes, picture this, if you will. Uh, this is in no way autobiographical. Autobiographical. Um, but imagine that you are uh, married, you have a couple of kids. And uh, further imagine it's getting around dinner time, and everybody's kind of hungry, and uh, you decide that, uh, yeah, okay, it's time to eat. So you get out of your nice comfy chair, and you kind of mosey into the kitchen, saunter over to the refrigerator, open it up, and uh, you're perusing, seeing what, what there is to eat. And you come across the leftovers of a fantastic meal that you had the other day. And you're like, oh, that sounds good. So you start pulling dishes. And out of the corner of your eye, you see your family's uh, busying themselves with setting the table. They've got the placemats and some dishes. and They've got silverware and everything. It's going well. It's it's idyllic, right? And you exchange those pleasantries that happen. You know, it's like, hey, how's it going? Everybody's all ready. Everybody's excited. There's anticipation for the meal. It's going to be good. And uh, so what you're doing is you grab your plate out of the cupboard and you put some food on it, just, you know, single-serving kind of thing, your own food, and you heat it up in the microwave. And, and uh, you go over to the table and you have this one plate of food and you set it down in your place and you sit down in your chair, you get all comfortable, and you proceed to eat your food. And your spouse looks at you incredulously just with their mouth gaping open like, what, what are you doing? Your kids are looking at you, and then they're looking at each other, and there's this, you can just tell the conversation they're having in their mind, is like, is this some kind of sick joke? Like, what's going on? Why why are you eating this food in front of us? And you finish your meal, and you, you know, wipe your mouth with your nappy, and you throw it on the table, go, that was good. Get up from the table, you leave the dishes on the table, and you go back to your comfy chair, and you turn on the TV or grab a book or do something else to entertain yourself. Now all you were doing was taking care of yourself. Is this a bad thing? What if we throw in there that it was actually your night to feed the family, to make sure that everyone had food and got to eat? Was it a bad thing that you just sat there and, and ate your food? Because uh, their expectation is that you were going to be feeding them, and they did not. I mean, to be fair, they have all the means necessary to stand up, go to the kitchen, go to the you know, refrigerator, get all the leftovers out, heat them up, and go back to the table themselves. All, everything they need there. So, well, what's the big deal? Hold that picture in your mind and jump back to Israel and what their purpose was. What the job that they had to do was. And at first glance on this book, it looks like God is just upset that they built their houses and they didn't build him a house like he needed one, right? But we have to think and we have to know what Israel's role in the world is. What were they called to do as a people even before the exile? They were called to show who God is through their obedience to the law, through the temple, through all this. They are to display God's glory to the whole earth through how they act, how they live, what they do. This was their job. So it isn't just that they aren't building the temple that has upset God. They are hindering hindering the... um, the showcase of God's glory to the people. Um, This is how God chose to do it, was through this chosen people, through this lineage. So God does not need that house to live in. He doesn't need just a place to crash. It's the idea that they are in disobedience here because they cannot fulfill the law without a temple to perform these things in. It's a pretty hard task. So God explains to them, uh, why they're experiencing these hard times. Their crops aren't growing. Hard time keeping those wages in your pocket. You're eating and drinking, and it doesn't seem to satisfy like it did. I wonder why that is.
0: Hmm.
1: Again, that was a specific punishment for those people. Um, but God also made it so that whatever they put their hands through, it didn't, it didn't go well. They had enough to get by, but it wasn't, it wasn't the abundant life that they were called to. So that's, uh, that's good for them, I guess, but how does it apply to us in the 21st century? Um, and that's where the, the fun challenge in preaching comes in is bringing that to here, right? Uh, I firmly believe 2 Timothy 3.16 where it says that all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So there is clearly something we can learn here. I want to finish out the rest of this um, the rest of this section here. So let's uh, read Haggai 1, 12 and 14, through 14, rather. So they've just heard everything that Haggai said, everything the Lord said through him. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jazadek, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to the Lord's people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jezadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and they began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, So here's this conviction that they have felt that we talked about. They built the temple, and it was a place where God would meet his people and his glory shown to the world. Jumping forward a few centuries to Jesus' time and keeping in mind that this temple was to be a dwelling place for God and his glory to be shown, We have Jesus and his disciples are are walking around one day, and one disciple in particular just asks them, uh, asks Jesus specifically, hey, can you just show us the Father? Show us Father God. And Jesus replies with this, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And uh, even in today's um, singing and worship, uh, we sang something similar to this, John's Gospel, uh, first chapter, verse 14, says, The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. It's the Word of God. He made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is Jesus that is uh, being talked about here. So we have the temple where God met His people. We have John, saying the word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, uh, I'm going to be jumping back and forth here, so apologize if it's confusing, but uh, how my mind works is this way. So I've got these two ideas. I've got this temple in the Old Testament. I have Jesus in the New Testament. And with, with the temple, even in Jesus' day, there was a curtain that separated the, um, the Holy of Holies where God would manifest his glory from the rest of the temple. And in Jesus' day, um, that was still there. I mean, only one guy could go in there once a year to perform his duties as a priest. And then this event, uh, which is recorded in Matthew, uh, if you want to write it down, Matthew twenty-seven fifty through 51. Jesus, at this point, has been... Uh, tried and convicted as a criminal, even though he wasn't. He's been hung on the cross. Um, and this is the, the end of it. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and rocks split. So I've still got these two pictures in my head, the temple and I have Jesus I have the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us and the curtain was torn in two. So access to the Holy of Holies is open. We have this this picture here that Jesus is our access to God. I want to draw some more parallels here. Um, The temple had served its purpose or um, did serve its purpose in Haggai's day in uh, bringing God's dwelling place among the people. You could go to the temple And hear the word proclaimed. Hear teachings. You could see his goodness. And right now, um, speaking to us here, some of us are followers of Christ in this room, some of us maybe not. Some of us started the journey and kind of got lost in the bushes. Maybe I don't know how you want to say it, but we're, we're all somewhere, either at the beginning, middle, or off on a sidetrack somewhere. But I want us to hear this. We don't have a temple so much here, like a physical temple, do we? Or do we? Is it something that, that we need? I mean, the old temple had served its purpose in pointing the nations to God and his love. And then when Matt came up and read... Earlier, I hope you're piecing that together in your head. I want to read again Ephesians 2, but I just want to focus on verses 19 through 22. The Apostle Paul is speaking to Gentile believers, those who are not Jewish. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, that's Israel, And also members of his household. That's just huge in and of itself. And also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and raises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. So, I will ask the question again, do we have a temple? The answer is yes. We are the temple. That that should hurt your brain. Because the infinite God of the universe chooses to... Dwell through his spirit in his church. That is how he displays his love and goodness to the world. It's what the Apostle Peter called living stones. That's what we are. So we still get impacted by, hey, guys, words today. Um, what was the focus of the people at that time? What were they focusing on? They were just focusing on living. Not necessarily bad things, but they were getting on with life. Uh, But they forgot who gave them that life, right? God wants to involve his people in his mission of uh, revealing himself to the rest of the world. He has called us into that. He is calling, if uh, if you have not accepted Christ and the work that he has done on the cross for you, He is calling us, uh, calling you to that. Now, as as this local expression of the church, Philida Bible has been focusing on some intentional ways of doing, churchy's word here, disciple-making. All that means is um, helping us know God, this God who made us better, connecting friends to that God, and how to reach out to a world that desperately needs God. It is a big task. It is a big job. It's um, crazy as it sounds. We hired a guy to help us do that. Um, and I know he works diligently with the rest of the staff uh, to make that happen. But I have to ask, as so we don't want to throw all that, okay, you one guy, make this happen at this church. We have to ask ourselves, how are we living our lives? Are we living our lives The same way that uh, the people and Haggai's they were? Are we just, are we busying ourselves with the the daily necessities, those daily fires that happen? I have to ask myself am I becoming so focused on caring for myself, on what I wear, what I eat, what I drink, where I work, what my house looks like, raising my child in a way that uh, God would have me raise her, that I've actually forgotten why I've been blessed with those abilities to do it? In Matthew 6, Jesus was talking about um, not being able to serve two masters, God and money, or those masters. Uh, and he advised that we lay up for ourselves treasures in heaven. And uh, continuing on from that, there's a therefore. Uh, he speaks about worry and anxiety. of you know, Why do you worry about these things? About what you're going to eat and drink and whatnot. And verses 31 and 33, Jesus says this. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? I ask myself that on a daily question. Uh, Continuing Jesus' words. For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Hmm. But seek first his kingdom, it's God's kingdom, and his righteousness, God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. These, uh, this food, this drink, what you'll wear, these will be given to you. And it's an echo in my mind of what uh, Haggai had said to Israel centuries before. Focus on, on God, the Father. Focus on the building of his kingdom and he will provide what you need for daily life. And I often forget that. Um, mentioning disciple-making. I heard a wise man once say, it is very hard, disciple-making is hard and it's messy because it involves sharing our lives with other people. I don't know if that's the exact quote, but that's how I took it. Uh, It is a messy business, building the kingdom of God, and it doesn't always look good, um, we don't think. But I'll tell you, what I have seen in my own life is that people are watching. As a Christian, if you are a Christian, if you profess to follow Christ, how do you present yourself in your, in your daily life? How does your family present themselves? And I'm not saying in a fake way. When hardship comes, when joy comes, when all the different things that living in a broken world throws at us, when politics don't go the way we want, or... Uh, The government doesn't do what we think they should do. Or, you know, all these different things just come flying at us. We hear about wars and rumors of wars and things like this. How do we react? Do we react like everybody else does? Or do we run to a God who knows, who loves, who cares? Do we pray for people? Do we meet their practical needs? Um, It's just one of these things where people watch how you act and what you do. Um, I know I've had coworkers. We've had conversations on this. Um, there's a marked difference. Sounds like bragging, and I apologize. It's all through the grace of God, but in how I react to certain things that happen at work than how they react. If I lose my job, that stinks. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to lose my job, but I know that God provides for me in different ways. So it's in how we react to um, any situation that's uh, going around. So I I want to bring it back then to that question we had, kind of looking over the last year, looking forward to the new year. How are we, as a church, as an individual, how are we going to, in partnership with God, build his kingdom? And I'm not talking necessarily the grounds here. It's nice to have a building to meet in where it's warm because it's cold outside. (laughs) That's nice. But how are we going to display God's love and his glory to a people that desperately need him? Be on the internet for five minutes on any kind of social site and you can see broken, hurting people. Talk to your coworkers and you see broken and hurting people. How can God use us to impact him? I impact them rather. It's only through His Spirit living in us, us being that temple as a community, and and working that way. Uh, We can do that through prayer. Uh, So let us let's pray right now. Just that uh, I'll just start praying, Father God. you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know where we're at in this journey. Father, if we've uh, never come to you in acknowledgement of our sin and our brokenness and what, uh, what Christ has done for us, I just ask that uh, you would help us wrestle with that. you would draw us into yourself. That uh, you would help our minds see clearly the work that you have done in bringing us back to you. Father, if we've made that decision and we've um, turned away at any point, uh, Father, I just pray you would call us back gently, help us confess those sins that we need to confess. Uh, We thank you uh, for your forgiveness that you offer and just ask that uh, through your spirit, you empower us to be salt, be light, be... Um, who you have called us to be in this world. Uh, Encouragement. um, That you would help us build your kingdom that way. Father, I thank you for those here who uh, are strong in their walk. I pray that you would encourage them, that they would continue in that walk. Father, all this is only possible through uh, your Spirit, so we ask that you would pour him out on us. And uh, we ask these all in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.